when Oscar the Wizard shows up in Oz, he just came from a a drab, dry, dingy farmland of Kansas, where the in all directions the land is flat and monochromatic, and, and monochromatic. <laughs> it, 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 humans in this world see the world much like dogs. This is episode 35 of the Movie Bite Podcast, a weekly show where we discuss, praise, lament, or lampoon movies, TV shows, and more. Today is Wednesday, March 13th, 2013. I'm your host, TJ, and here with me, as always, is my co-host. I'm calling him today Crash Joe. What? Why? Why are you calling me that? Well, You're I think mean. you know why. <laughs> You're always getting in wrecks and stuff, man. I'm What's just sitting there, minding my own business. And uh, today it was a pickup uh, truck slammed into the back of me because a delivery truck slammed into the back of the pickup. Yeah. Oh, boy. It's no fun, man. Yeah, it sounds terrible. Two accidents in 10 days. Just, I'm ready to go home and sleep for like a week. Yeah, no, I don't blame you. In a fetal position. Just, and, you know, and yet, off to the world. And yet I'm forcing you to do a show today. <sighs> so what should I call you? Uh, you may call me Lord Draper. <laughs> Lord Draper. Okay. That works. <laughs> All right. I wouldn't have chosen well, it. Shall we but... stop lamenting our personal issues and uh, stop being selfish about having been in wrecks and whatnot? And, and okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, I don't know what's up. You're like a magnet for these things. That's what somebody else said. All right. Well, it's it's just I guess it's just your run of, you know, it's your 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 turn to have bad luck. <sighs> it is. 27 years all down the drain. Here it goes. All right. Well, you ready to get started? Mhm. Yeah, you wanted to talk about some stuff today. Yes, I do, and I'm pulling it up right now. I feel kind of out of kilter because we're doing this in the middle of the day. We normally do this in the evening. Right, I don't normally get a you know, There's, a glass of gin in the afternoon, but I'm okay with that. It's it's weird. I I I'm, there's sunlight sparkling through my window and, and shining on my vampire skin in my cave here. Uh, anyway, I, I don't know where I'm going with that, but we'll just, we'll call it quits there. <laughs> <laughs> well, first item on the, uh, the, the thoughts today, you wanted to talk a little bit about oblivion. Did you get a chance to listen to this? No, I really want to. Is it good? It's really good. I like it a lot. If you like the Tron soundtrack, you're going to like this. Oh, um, really? So what, what this is, this is a soundtrack, uh, a, a track from the soundtrack of Oblivion by a band apparently called M83. I've never heard of them before. Uh, M83 Mastermind, Anthony Gonzalez. Gonzalez? Uh, Gonzalez? I don't know. It's a Z on the end. I, I'm not going to go to the names. Is scoring Oblivion with Tron Uprising composer Joseph Trapanese. Uh, so, uh, there, that, that would probably explain why it sounds a little bit like Tron. There's definitely some Tron influence in there. Um, I, I like it a lot. I'm really looking forward to the soundtrack. Well, I, I'm sure you would, because it, if it's anything like Tron Legacies, it's going to be great. Now, do you think it has any influence from, you know, another composer type, like Hans Zimmer coming in and writing some themes and passing no, it, it on to a band to turn it into some sort of dubstep thing? Oh, you just mean in terms of how it's done, not how it sounds, right? I don't know. I don't. Okay. Don't know. Can't. Couldn't. Couldn't speak to that. I just know that it sounds great. And I'm really looking forward to hearing the full 
you know, thing. To, you know, hopefully it'll live up to what I'm expecting now. Okay. So well, good. Link link for I, this I, will be in the show notes. If anybody wants to give it a listen, I highly recommend it. I'm looking forward to Oblivion more now. Just everything I've seen about it seems really cool. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, greatly. Is it possible? To it. Is it possible, TJ, that I could actually like a Tom Cruise movie? What well, did you not like, Jack oh. Reacher? I can't remember. Did you? What did you rate that? I didn't. I think I maybe gave it a two out of five. Oh, I think you did. I'm kind of remembering that now. That's that's such a bummer. What's wrong yeah. with you? Some things work, some things don't. But that's yeah, that was one of them. Okay, well, I I tend to like Tom Cruise films, so uh, well, good for I, you. I know I know that he's uh. What, Celebrity? What's the word? Well, I mean, I know that he has to be cast right. Like, I know he's not the greatest actor in the world, but when he's cast in the right roles for the right films, he's great. And I, I think he works well, right. and I think he's going to work well in this role. This is the type of role that he's good in. Well, I generally like his older stuff. I'm but, not opposed to him in general. Did you like Minority Report? Yes. Please tell me you liked Minority Report. Yes, I did. Very good. Then we, we can continue being friends, Joe. I will I will overlook the car wrecks and things that you've been getting into because of that. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. All right. Shall we move on to the next item? Sure. You wrote an article about ratings called oh, Star-Studded yeah. Ratings by the Numbers. I have, to t- I have to talk a little bit about this title. You sent me the article to preview before we posted it and, and wanted to know my input. And after mm-hmm. I carefully and meticulously went over all your words and recrafted them into something that meant something. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I, I think I caught a couple of spelling errors. It was a good you, article. You took my entire article and reduced it to one phrase. <laughs> and that was star-studded. Yeah, right. well, you asked me You asked me for uh, if, if I had any ideas for a name for this article because you didn't have a name when you after you wrote it. You're like, what shall I call this unwieldy beast? And... Uh, I, I had two. I, well, I did, I did star-studded ratings, and then I typed in another one. We were chatting on IM, and I said, or by the numbers. And you said, well, I like them both. Let's use them both. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's, it's totally cool, right? So, anyway, Nobody would have come up with that title but us. Star-studded ratings by the numbers. So what, yes. tell, tell me a little bit, why in the world did you write this thing? I, I had no idea you were writing it, and then all of a sudden you sent it to me, and it's like, okay, what, what, mm. what, in, what prompted this? Mm, okay, well. There's a story here. It's like I say at the beginning of the article that MovieByte has a five-star rating system that goes from half a star to five stars. And this frees up us to write reviews that we think are fairly specific about the value of a film. And we use 2.5 stars to mean that it's like at the median point. It's just, you know, it's an average film. It's not either good or bad. It's got a mixed bag of each about equally. But a lot of people don't really know what quantifies a slightly good movie or a slightly poorer movie, mm-hmm. it's very easy to rate a movie very low or very high. And so what I did is I went scouring the internet looking for some good references for explaining what a two and a half or three and a half or one and a half star film means. Why is it that low? Why is it that high? Why do you, why do you give it any credit if it was a bad film? How do you, how do you gauge that? And so when we go into Rotten Tomatoes and see a rating of 63%, we, you know, we kind of figure that that means it's sort of like grading a paper in school anywhere from, you know, though I, I imagine there's hardly ever a paper that gets a, a one, two out of a hundred, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's, pa- you know, papers in school were all about an, a number between one to a hundred. And I think that that's what Rotten Tomatoes kind of does, right? 
So, the, but the, what they're actually saying, they're not saying that. They're just saying that sixty-one percent of the audience is giving this film a thumbs up, and then the other percentage point thirty-nine is giving it a thumbs down. In our case, it works a little differently. We're actually saying there are some things that we like about this film and some things we don't like about this film. And if we get over two and a half, we're saying it's it's more likable than not, or vice versa. So I I went through a lot of research on this. I found some really good pieces. And based on them, I think I did my best job to break it down and say, here is like a definition for the human experience of what a half a star rated film is quantifies what yeah. it means you know and i i've never like i've never sat down and worked this out the way you have and, and you wrote this article but this is pretty much my, the same philosophy as mine well good uh, you know which is two and a half is a neutral position it, it's neither it, it's good qualities way the same as is bad qualities and that, that that's essentially to me where you start when you talk about the five star rating system is two and a half is neutral therefore anything on the on the uh left side if you're reading stars across from left to right, anything on the left side of that is negative, and anything on the right side is positive. So, uh, right, absolutely. So, yeah, that, I'm sorry to sorry to boil your article down to that, but <laughs> sure. Well, <laughs> and all of this is subjective too, right? We're not trying to cram this down anybody's throats and say, "Hey, you know, IMDb needs to listen to us," and this we figured it all out. This is objective, you know. We're not trying to say this is the rule. This is just, you know, to help better explain ourselves. Right, if anybody well, cares to understand what we mean by our star ratings. Yeah, I think what we're, we're not saying this is the rule. We're saying this is our rule. This is when, when you see films reviewed on Movie Byte, this is how they're reviewed. This is our star rating. When you hear us give a star rating on the podcast, that's how we do it. That's kind of the, our, our meter for judging that. Right, yeah. So, yeah. So that article also is in the show notes, and I liked it a lot, uh, and I'm sure well, you did because you wrote it. So yes. uh, find it in the show notes at mo- uh, moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 35. Yeah, I, re- I liked it so much I read it a few times. <laughs> I'm sure you did. Okay, so next we have up the Not Cool UK, You Can't Have Star Trek Before Us story. What's yes. up with this? This this uh, I I was this was tongue in cheek when I wrote the headline. The headline was a joke, <laughs> and I wrote some joking things in the uh, body uh, after after the quote. Which uh, s- somebody on Facebook in the comments on our article on Facebook actually took seriously, and it was totally a joke. Like I don't really care that they're getting it before us. I mean, my as a fanboy of Star Trek, I do care. But I don't really care. But here's what I wrote. As you, as you read the headline, let me read it with the proper inflection. Oh, thank you. Not cool, UK. You can't have Star Trek before us. Ah. That's how it's intended to be heard. Now, um, and so I wrote in the body. Okay, here, here's the quote from uh, Deadline.com. The UK release of J.J. Abrams' Star Trek Into Darkness has officially been moved up by one week to May the 9th when it will go out in IMAX 3D. Uh IMAX 3D, 3D, and 2D cinemas. Paramount currently has set the film for May 17th release in the States. There's the pertinent information. So May 9th in the mm. UK, May 17th in the States. What's up with that? That's annoying. So um, so I wrote, yeah. hey, what did we win the Revolutionary War for if not to <laughs> those folks that are sharing their early releases with us? <laughs> this is so not fair. It's like the time my sister got to ride in the front seat and I had to sit in the back of the car where I couldn't see anything and couldn't participate in the conversation. That's right. Yeah, you know, this reminds me of a lot of transported goods. You know, down in the Caribbean, um, when I went on my honeymoon, we had uh, bananas on the island of Barbados. 
and they they're known for bar- their bar- bananas. They're the best. They're just they're wonderful. I, I couldn't describe how terrible bananas in the states compare to Barbados bananas. But here's the thing: they actually don't keep any of their own bananas. Huh. They they sell them to all the other islands nearby, and then they import bananas from uh, I think it's Jamaica, and that's what they eat. But the Jamaican bananas are inferior. So yeah, it's the same sort of deal. It's like why why do we do this to ourselves? I and know. you know, with a Star Trek movie, it doesn't make any sense either because you know it's not like well we need to see how audiences respond to this and market it with a different slant in the United States and allow word of mouth to get around on Facebook so that people overseas start encouraging more Americans to go see this film. You know, no, it's it's not yeah, like that this I, time. It's weird. I really don't know what's driving. Everybody's going to see this movie. Yeah, we don't need I for mean, this to become viral before <laughs> Americans get out and go out and see this movie. Yeah, and it's kind of weird. Like. Like, I, I am joking in my in what I read and what I wrote, but at the same time, I, I think it's more of a, a weirdness or a, a, a strangeness. Like, why are they – why is that? What What's motivating that? Why did that happen? I mean, I understand Star Trek has a pretty international audience, but it is an American thing, right? It, it's very much an American thing. So it's, it's yeah. just a little strange. I don't know what they're up to. You know, even Star Wars had more, you know, British actors in it than uh, filmmakers in general than Star Trek ever did. Yeah. Oh, definitely. oh, 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 I know what it is. You think we it's can blame? Yes, we can blame it on him. Okay, we'll blame mm. it on him. Totally, okay. I'm, I'm there. I'm with you, man. The villain is behind this. All right, so we should move on to uh, Joss Whedon discussing Agent Coulson. Had, had you heard, were you aware that Agent Coulson was going to be in the TV <sighs> show S.H.I.E.L.D.? I was not. You know, he's dead now, so it kind of strikes me as funny that he is going to be in a TV show. Yeah, and and here here's the thing that I wrote that uh, my first thought uh, back when I heard first heard that Agent Coulson was likely to be in Shield was that it would not be the first time Whedon has revived a supposedly dead character to start a spinoff show. Mm. Uh, and are are you aware of his previous doings on this front? No. Okay, so Angel. Okay, have you watched any Buffy? Yes, not much. Okay, in the second season, Angel dies. Uh, more or less. Uh, actually, he was sent off to a hell dimension. But as far as we knew, as far as we that that was it. That was the end of Angel. He was no more. And hmm. uh, he <laughs> he was brought back though because um the the network wanted another show, a spinoff of Buffy. And hmm. so Joss says, "Well, I want to have an Angel on that." So they brought him back from the hell dimension, even though they had said <laughs> there was no way he could come back from that. So this is not the first, this is not new territory for Joss Whedon. My guess is that, that when the script was written, and even maybe when they were filming the movie, they didn't know that there was going to be a TV show, and so we'll just kill Agent Coulson. Now, here's the thing. Uh, we just assumed Coulson was dead, but we also know that Nick Fury lied about the cards being in his pocket. Maybe he lied about him being dead, too. Maybe he wasn't really dead. We didn't see him actually die, We don't, or we don't know that he actually died I mean, we can't say for certain i think we just assume that he did we see you know because think about the scene in the movie where it's really slow-mo and 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 you know stylized there's no sound yeah we don't i mean i suppose that could be the excuse or we could just have super cool technology from you know the asgard bring him back <laughs> well it'd also be pretty boring right if 
they tell this new shield TV show as a prequel to the Avengers movies. I mean, obviously that's one direction to take it. I don't that agent Coulson is still alive because the, the events of Avengers haven't happened yet. You don't think that that's what they're going to do? I don't think so. No, Hmm. the, the the other possibility, it is a possibility that there could be flashbacks and and what you're saying is a possibility, but the other possibility is there you go. Could be flashbacks. I don't think so though. I don't think so. Why not? I just don't. It seems like flashbacks are what all TV so shows are about now. I could uh, see that. So uh, Greg and Whedon were at South by Southwest together, and they were promoting Much Ado About Nothing, which is another project they both worked on. Whedon directed uh, Clark, Greg, uh, Clark, Greg, Greg Clark. I can't remember which. His Greg two first Clarkson? Names. No, no. The guy who did, the guy who played. I just can't remember which one is his first okay. name and which is his last, but it's Clark oh. Greg or Greg Clark. <laughs> it's okay. terrible when you have two first names like that. Uh, anyway, so Whedon first attempted to explain jokingly how Coulson might have recovered from the violent end, at, his violent end at Loki's hands. He says, I'll tell you this, Heimlich. <laughs> oh, brother. Yes. He then got more serious, confirming that Coulson is alive and kicking for realsies, he said. So that makes me think that it's not prequel and it's not flashback. Because he's mm. alive and kicking for realsies. Mm-hmm. So anyway, interesting. I mean, we're probably taxing this this subject. I just, you know, I love the Avengers and, you know, mm. there you go. Yeah, there you go. And by the way, it is Clark Gregg. Yeah. Clark Gregg. Okay. You know, it's funny. I don't ever say that name out loud. I write it sometimes and I usually copy and paste it. I just realize I'm sitting here going, oh, no, I'm, I don't know which one's his first one and which one's his last sure. one. And well, I didn't all, write it in that article. So none of these actors have really memorable names, TJ. We, we just, uh, you know, you know, some we, of them do. Yeah, like, it, those are made up. It's their their real names that don't stick out. Mm, okay, Clark Gregg is probably his real name. So probably so. I just assume they're most most guys, except for Army Hammer. I'm assuming that that's a stage name. <laughs> yeah, it sounds too good. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to. So think then, does that book. mean that his twin brother has a stage name too that ends with Hammer? I could see that. No, 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 no. It's not. I I just remembered. TJ, there's actually a pretty cool story about Army Hammer. He he's uh. He is of the same family that owns the, uh, is it the baking soda? The Army Hammer Arm baking soda? Arm and sim? Hammer? Arm, yes, Arm and Hammer. Yes, he is in the same family dynasty as the owners of the Arm and Hammer baking soda. Interesting. Yeah. So that's the, yeah. Oddly enough, a real memorable name and it's real. Next, we have the Oz movie by Disney's sequel will not have Dorothy which I'm, is really peculiar right because no not necessarily I don't think it it's is peculiar. there are 13 other stories to tell in this universe and not all of them include Dorothy 13 yes where'd you get that number Frank Baum wrote 13 books is my understanding but did he write the story of the wizard's backstory I don't think that that was one no, of his that, books that one he didn't write and that that's the interesting thing we'll, we'll get into this more in our view this is kind of a precursor here to our our main topic Okay. But uh, in any event, uh, there will be no Dorothy in the Oz sequel. I don't think we can rule it out in the future. I think that there could be an arrangement and they could come to a deal. I think the problem with including Dorothy is a legal problem as much as anything. Right. And it shouldn't be. Because Oz isn't li- a legal issue. The red, br- uh, the Yellow Brick Road isn't, you know... I, I just think they're treading lightly. I don't know. And I think they're trying... I, I, my guess is they would hope to work out a deal with uh, 
it used to be MGM, and, and I forget who owns it now. Um, who bought out MGM? Do you remember? In it was event, Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers. Okay, Warner Brothers. Yes. So I, my, my guess is they're going to want to work out a deal with Warner Brothers at some point. So they're probably trying to tread lightly uh, so that they can actually go on and tell the full series of stories, including Dorothy. Well, word has it that Warner Brothers is in the works of several Oz movies. That's and true. And right now, they're just kind of bummed out that Disney beat them to the punch because now their films will seem counter to the cultural development of Oz by the Disney films. Right. Not it, matching the same timelines. Yeah, frankly, it's going to lead to a lot of uh, <sighs> viewer confusion, consumer confusion. Yeah. And I would rather just see them work together. It w- that would be nice, wouldn't it? Yes. You know, the, one of my favorite films in general, I think I've already mentioned. No, I mentioned it in the After Dark last time. It, the what? But it was, Wait, um, what are you talking about? Um, that's just a cookie. People go look that up. Um, <laughs> well, I mentioned it in this other thing. And it was uh, Return to Oz was made in 1985. And that was about a young Dorothy. And it was made as a sequel to the story of The Wizard of Oz. But it wasn't a musical. And it wasn't all happy, fun, Disney princess-like. It was all very serious. It was designed to be more dramatic, dark, and mysterious. And though it definitely felt like Oz, it was not in keeping with the traditional lighthearted comedic things of the Oz movie that everybody knows and loves. I mean, you can't seem to escape the... I think people associate Oz with fun kid-friendly comedy and lighthearted fantasy. And that's unfortunate because this movie made in 1985 was trying to be more consistent with the source material, not making it altogether comedic and presenting a, you know, a few funny moments in an otherwise dramatic story. So it didn't really work with audiences, but that was Disney's first attempt back in 1985, and mm-hmm. it seems like most everybody is overlooking that now. I've never even heard of it, except I've heard you mention it, but before we started doing the podcast, I'd never heard of it. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, I'm not going to say it's like the only Oz you should watch, but it's yeah. really good. Well, there you go. So then we know that the next, the sequel to this one, Disney's sequel to this film, will not involve Dorothy. And, and you I know, think it, that's it, a mistake. No, I don't at all because I think there's plenty of story to tell here. I think, and, and we're 20 years before Dorothy, so there's there's some got to be stuff happening in Oz between now and 20 years from now, right? Sure, but I guess then that means we're going to continue with the Wizard as the starring protagonist. And why not? Oh, okay, this is going to get into why I like the film. So we well, should. <laughs> okay, well, let's go ahead and just say this. You know, um, to give a little explanation about the storyline about this Oz film, if you haven't seen it, that just came out. It's mostly about how does the Wizard, who is something of a fake. Yeah, but he's a, he pretends to be a wizard in a traveling circus. How is it that this wizard gets to Oz and then is mistakenly made the Wizard of Oz? And that's what this first movie was about that just came out. So presumably, now we have the wizard in Oz and everything is ready for Dorothy to arrive. But you're saying that there's 20 years between now and when Dorothy shows up. Yes. Now, how do you know that? Uh, because that's what Disney said, and I Disney guess Disney said so. And, and they mentioned what the year was too. And there's that's a, true. There's a timeline. Well, the timeline is it's neither here nor there because the earliest versions of Dorothy were set like 
in the 1870s or something. Okay. Well, my point so. is, though, that there is a timeline that has been out, that's out there. I don't have it right in front of me, but I've definitely read this. This is not okay. my. This is not me saying this. This is. I think it's fair to say that there was a 20-year gap between the arrival of the wizard and the arrival of Dorothy. What was the year that this movie takes place in? Did they say it was in the uh, er- very early 19? Uh, little, it's like 1903 or something. Something like that. Yes. Yeah. I I just think it's a mistake because if they want to make a sequel and it's about the wizard and they've already suggested that he has a uh some sort of romantic entanglement with Glenda between this point in time and the end of the Wizard of Oz story with Dorothy there isn't any reason to believe that there is a romantic entanglement between Glinda and Oz the wizard There's not but here here's the thing everybody is saying that this is a sequel to the MGM Wizard of Oz, the 1939 Wizard of Oz, Disney. Be, I don't believe Disney said that. Why can't no, they go down Disney a different isn't. road? They definitely, well, most likely will, but I think that it works right now as an excellent it, prequel. It, uh, mostly works, yes. What there does it work for you? Iffy things. Oh. Okay, so let's. This is this has pretty much led us into our current review of Oz the Great and Powerful. So we should yes. uh, disseminate a little information about this film. This okay, film. TJ, you want to talk for a minute? I, I need to turn down the air. It's it's getting kind of muggy in here. You go ahead and introduce us to this movie. Okay, this film was made on a budget of $215 million, a huge sum of money, but not surprising, I suppose, since it uh, it has a lot of special effects and things in it. Uh, at the same time, I don't know that it, you, you know, I suppose this is on the same level as Jack the Giant Slayer, which budget I can't recall right off the top of my head, but it was way up there, $195 million, I think it was. Uh, so budget of $250 million, it's a little bit bigger budget. It opened uh, to $79 million uh, domestically, and worldwide it is sitting at $149 million. So it has a chance of making back this budget, I think. I think there's a good chance it'll make back the budget. So uh, I'm back. Okay, so I was just I was just telling folks about the budget. Hmm. And how it compares to Jack the Giant Slayer, which I suppose, if you think about it, it's probably on the same scale in terms of CGI and production values and production things. Yeah. So. There's much better actors in this movie, but I don't know how much that affects the budget. You and I are going to come to blows, man. <sighs> okay. <laughs> uh, all right. So, general claim from Rotten Tomatoes, it suffers from some tonal inconsistency and a deflated sense of wonder. Uh, I can hardly read this, but Oz <laughs> Powerful still packs enough visual dazzle and clever wit to be entertaining in its own right. I, I believe in I the know. last part and the very first part, I disagree largely with the middle part. Uh, which is... It, 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 okay, it's got a little tonal inconsistency. It, 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 it's a, dis, a deflated sense of wonder. That's are, the part I don't get. I don't get, I don't get tonal inconsistency yeah. either. I don't know what they're talking about. Oh, I get it. There, but anyway, let's keep going. Okay. So yeah, what did you but what do you think you basically just disagree with their assessment? I do. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. Okay, fair enough. So, I, I see that. Based on L. Frank Baum's Oz novels, Oz the Great and Powerful serves as a spiritual prequel to set 20 years before Baum's 1900 introductory novel, The The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, and indirectly to the 1939 MGM film The Wizard of Oz. The film yes. was released by Walt Disney Pictures. And grant you, this is just what Wikipedia is saying, but it seems to be the general consensus. Right, well, this is how people sure, are interpreting the movie today. It certainly is, as it stands now, an indirect prequel to the 1939 film, and it's certainly a prequel in terms of the, the book world. I mean, because this is an adaptation of the book world now. They can go in all kinds of different directions if they want to, and, and obviously 
uh, films based on books have. Uh, born anybody? Um, <laughs> but they, you know, they don't have to. They can do anything they want at this point. No, nothing yeah. has been written. Uh, pen has not been put to paper on a sequel or sequels or anything like that. Well, they have said we're getting a sequel, but they did. So it's have been they greenlit, announced? but there's no, right. there's no, there's been no writing yet. Right. They, they haven't announced when it's coming out, have they? No. Okay. So it'll probably be announced in a few weeks. Uh, a little bit more about the story. Um, when Oscar Diggs, played by James Franco, a small-time circus magician with dubious ethics, is hurled away from dusty Kansas to the vibrant land of Oz, he thinks he's hit the jackpot. Fame and fortune are his for the taking, that is, until he meets three witches. Theodora, played by Mila Kunis. Evanora, Mila. played by Rachel Weisz. You say you say Mila 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 yes okay I've heard both uh, we'll go well, we'll call she, we'll go she with calls Mila herself Mila so <laughs> okay well then I'll call her you don't know that could be your nickname uh-huh. um and Glinda played by Michelle Williams the witches are not convinced he is the great wizard that is prophesied will come and restore goodness in the land of Oz but the citizens of Oz give Oscar their full support. Reluctantly drawn into the epic problems facing the Oz and its inhabitants, Oscar must find out who is good and who is evil before it's too late. Putting his magical arts to use through ingenious illusion, Oscar transforms himself not only into the great wizard, but into a better man. And this is just a modified description from the Disney studio. Yeah. So that's how they would like to put it. Um, it was directed by Sam Raimi. Yes. Like we, and uh, it was written by people I'm unfamiliar with. Uh, Michelle Kapner, David Lindsay Ebner, uh, Ab- Aber, I guess, and L. Frank Baum, who I am a little familiar with. He's yeah, credited, but the guy is dead. I want to point out that you misread uh, the first writer, Mitchell, not Michelle. Oh, shoot. Sorry. Yeah. Difference in gender there. All right. So, and of course, starring, as you mentioned, James Franco, Mila Kunis, Rachel Wise. Michelle Williams, Zach Braff, who I have never seen before, and Bill Cobbs, who I've also never seen before. So, well, um, Zach Braff is uh, one of the midgets. You've seen him around, but you wouldn't know him by name. Well, talk about the music. The Danny music. Elfman. Uh, the music was passable. Um, I didn't think it was anything special, or I didn't think it was bad. So that doesn't really help. <laughs> what did you think of the music, Joe? Um... I th- I thought that it suited the, the, its purposes. It was thankfully not too much uh, heavily influenced by Danny Elfman, Tim Burton films. I was wary when I saw that it was Danny Elfman because he plagiarizes himself so much. And he's really good. And his themes are always entertaining. But then they all begin to sound alike. So this film seems like... Sam Raimi challenged him, maybe he challenged himself to really pay homage to the source material. I really liked the stuff at the beginning when it was all black and white and showing Kansas because it felt very folksy and uh, old American. And the opening title sequence music was reminiscent of the spirit of your your carnival you know, in old America. Um, very playful and odd and magical you know, good stuff. Yeah, definitely. I was that, only let down by the soundtrack halfway through the credits when they turned on a pop rock song and it was yeah, completely was weird. Uncharacteristic of the movie. Yeah, it was really strange. But but yeah. you know, it's forgivable, I suppose, in the credits. 
So mm. uh, the, the the music was neither great nor bad, in, in my opinion, in terms of the rest of the film and and scoring the film. So, uh, but yeah, I, I did like uh, while we're here, I, I did like the way that the film opened. It may have been an obvious way to do it, but it was still a good way to do it, which is it it, it opened not only in black and white as as you might recall if you've ever seen the nineteen thirty nine film. But it also opened in the Academy film ratio, which is a little bit wider than 4 by 3 but it's not as wide as the films we watch these days. Uh, and so mm. it was a – it looked it, on that big screen like 4 by 3 in black and white. And, uh, you know, it was, it was definitely uh, kind of the, the, the effect they were going for, and I, I liked it, you know. Yeah, it was cool. And like somebody else had pointed out in another article, to try and differentiate itself from the MGM film, it was not in sepia tone, it was in black and white. Right. Um, and, and little things like that I don't think we really need to be concerned with anyway. I didn't, didn't even notice. In fact, it's been so long since I saw the original film, I didn't realize it was in sepia. Yeah. But it was it, in it, black and white. It was kind of odd, because old films weren't really shot in sepia. They were shot in black and white. Um. And it stands out because it was sepia. So, well, you want to talk a little bit about what you liked or disliked? You know, what I liked, TJ, were the visual effects. It seems like the animated characters were really well done. Yeah. And, you know, there was some huge expanses when you got to see a whole village or you got to see the mountainous terrain for miles and miles. Or you got to see one corner of the to- the highest peak of the Emerald City down to the lowest corner alleyway on the far side. And when they did these beautiful cinematic sh- shots, the expanses were just gorgeous. And I think that that's characteristic of one of Sam Raimi's special qualities. I don't know if it has so much to do with him or the talent he keeps with him on his movies, because you could say the same thing about his Spider-Man films for New York City, that he really gets huge expanses and he's no, he knows how to make a city look really impressive from a long distance. And he did the same thing for Oz. Yeah, and it can't be all him. It has to be obviously the artist he surrounds himself with. And I, I agree. Uh, what was it that thing said that it suffers from a deflated sense of wonder? And you've got to go, what, what? Did they watch the same movie that I watched? I totally disagree. Yeah. So, mm. yeah, definitely. I, I thought that the visual effects were, as you say, top shelf. Um, there mm. was – I had no complaints at all. It, it really brought the sense of wonder and, uh, you know, they obviously went for the, the uh, surris- surreal uh, feeling of Oz. Obviously, even, you, you might remember they, they tried to do this, and I'm sure at the time in 1939 it did look great, but they tried to do this with the 1939, uh, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, to give it a really saturated, surreal feeling when you were in the Land of Oz. And I think that by today's standards, it sort of fails at that. But this film really succeeds. Who knows in in, uh, 50 or 60 years down the road if this film will feel the same way as the 1939 one does now. But they really succeeded, at least for now, in in showing that this is really a surreal and wonderful and uh, visually appealing place. And another one of the, I don't want to call it advancements, I think it's a refinement of animated characters in a live-action film. We're seeing more and more films that are able to pull off the the convincing live-action animated characters like Gollum, you know? Oh, yeah. And as much as I want to hold it against him, even a lot of the animated characters in the Star Wars prequels, that... They came off completely Joe? colorless Joe? and annoying. Why are we talking about 
the prequels? Because they <laughs> they had a lot to do with landmark action, live action animation animated characters. They they were not great characters, but they were really trying to push the envelope of those films. And so there were often times, for instance, when a stormtrooper no 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 what were they called clone troopers clone troopers were more often than not uh, CG animated, and then there were just a few guys that were wearing suits. And you really couldn't tell the difference between one of the animated guys and the guy wearing a suit. But um, even so, you just kind of knew that they were not real people there. They were just animated guys standing beside, you know, some Jedi dude. And in this film, and since we've come away from that, and we have other films like Lord of the Rings that are under our belt, now we got all these other films. When they come out with a CG animated character... They, they can really keep their own next to the live action people. And one of the great examples in this film is the little porcelain girl. Uh, what was her name? I don't remember her name off the top of my head. I'm opening IMDb right now. <laughs> hmm. But that little girl, she is supposed to be the only sole survivor of a village of little porcelain dolls. And they're kind of people I don't know were ever you know, given a name yeah, like jo- Munchkins. Jo- Joey King is the name of the little girl. Strange Joey name for King. a girl, but there you go. Huh. She's been in a few things. Um, I don't know if she's been in anything I've actually seen. Oh, well, she was in The Dark Knight Rises, older prison child. <laughs> huh. So, anyway, she's she's been around a little bit. She was in the TV series Ghost Whisperer, that sort of thing. But but what I wasn't talking about the actress. I was talking about what was the name of the character. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, of course you were. I got distracted by uh just called China Girl. Oh, okay. Well, she did a great job. Um yeah, no, they, totally. they 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 really sell that she is occupying the space alongside of James Franco. And he like there were several times when he picked up the China doll or the girl climbed up his leg and stuff and it didn't seem to be off kilter like so many cartoon animated live action mix-ups. No, there there was one or two times when I thought, "No, nah. That's a little odd looking, but it, you're right. It wasn't like, I mean, I, I don't think we're quite there, but it wasn't terrible. Mm. Well, so. it, w- it was good. just not great. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Okay. It just, there was a couple of times where I go, ah, that's animated. <laughs> that's, and he's <laughs> obviously not really holding her. So, yeah. Well, I could, uh, yeah, I noticed a few times when he was holding her. Yes, the animators did a wonderful job of selling the impression in which the light hit her and then the light would hit James with shadows cast on him and stuff like that. But then it seemed to be that she had no weight to her. Like James didn't have to carry any physical weight when he picked her up. Right. That's always the trouble. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't look like he has any weight in his hands. Admittedly, she's light, but there's still a little bit. You can just, you can just tell when you're interacting with air or when you're interacting with a physical object, there's got to be a way around that. And we haven't figured it out yet. So, sandbags, Indiana Jones sandbags. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess you just have to key them all out, and you know, here I am talking filmmaker talk. But I, I, yeah, there's, there's definitely, you know, you could tell he was interacting with nothing. <laughs> so, a couple of times, but you know, like I said, it was really good. It, I, I've seen much, much worse. Well, TJ, tell me something else that you liked. Um, you know, there, one of the things that this film really pulls off. Well, uh, just in talking like about uh, Frank the monkey, 
uh, this is what Jar Jar should have been. Since you brought up the prequels, I can go there. Uh, this is the way Jar Jar should have been and wasn't. He wasn't annoying. He was actually funny, you know, and he wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, so over the top stupid that you wanted to kill him. Right. Uh, and it could have been very easy to have taken it that direction. Totally. I thought he was fine. I thought he was perfect. Great comedic relief. I really liked that. In fact, if anything, some of the munchkins were letdowns compared to the monkey. He seemed much more interesting, much more uh, personable than some of the other characters. The Munchkins Small have characters. always been hard to play for comedy, though. I, I felt like they were a bit, uh, what's the word, just not, didn't pay off well in the original. Disingenuous? Yeah, yeah, maybe that's the word. Yeah, I, I, I think they're hard to do right, and so I think maybe Raimi was kind of ignoring them a little bit. Ah. <laughs> uh. You know, yeah, I can I, see that. I don't know. I, I just feel like they're hard to get right. And so I don't blame him, you know, for, for staying away from them. And I I think that the real comic relief in this film worked very well, which was the monkey. Hmm. Well, but this also ties back into some of the material in the books, because the other Oz movie by MGM really didn't use uh, monkey flying monkeys as characters. But they were some of, uh, some of the side characters in the original source material. Mm. And it's something that I appreciate about this movie as a whole. I don't know about the China doll um, and her little vi- village that was destroyed, but it felt like it hearkened to the source material very well. I've read the Wizard of Oz book a few times, and I am familiar with some of the other plots just because I wanted to know, like, what did L. Frank Baum do? I think that Baum's material has been largely influential on other uh, kids' fantasy novels like uh, i actually haven't done any research on this but it just seems to me that what Baum did evokes a lot of the qualities in the chronicles of narnia series and i think that c.s lewis was a very creative man but i think that had he been familiar with from uh, from's Baum's writings that it could have given him a lot of inspiration just uh, in a variety of ways. A kid goes through a very traumatic experience like a tornado and winds up in another you know, world. And then through another traumatic experience or something like magic, winds up going back. And there are talking lions. So I think that Baum had a lot to do with introducing great children's fiction in America. And... And it influenced the world at large. So I appreciate that this movie isn't so much modernized or like a modern telling where the wizard is somebody, some guy walking the streets of America today and winds up, you know, getting sent to a modernized Oz or something. I know that there have been other adaptations that have tried to do this and it doesn't seem to work because they're so off basis with the source material that they don't seem to be... (laughs) it's like they pay no mind to it. Like they have better ideas than the source material does. Yeah. And there's no guarantee that their, their ideas are better than the source material. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, but we do know that the source material is mighty good. So then why don't you just use that as much as possible? So while a lot of people might think of this as a prequel to the 1939 film, maybe what they really need to think about is how this is a prequel that's fairly consistent with bombs books. And I yeah. appreciate the homages there. Yeah, I, I have to say I've not read any of Baum's books, so you know I, I'm not, not the right person to speak to that. But you know, I'm glad to hear that. 
Because yeah. I, I know that one of the biggest irritations for me is I, I don't mind when a film deviates from a book when it needs to, when it because it is a different storytelling format. Uh, but I know one of the biggest irritations for me is when movies change things from the book that the it totally would have worked better to do it the way the book did it, and they just had to do it to be different. Ah, uh, yeah. And, and the, the ending of uh, the Harry Potter series is a great example of that. The, the, the books, it was obvious that the writers and the director just didn't understand how important the way the books ended was, and so they just changed it. Huh. I was kind of surprised that Rowling let it go, but, you know, anyway, that's neither here nor there, it's, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that. On the flip side, I will mention that things like the Emerald City and the source material aren't actually green. Um, the, the way it worked in the original novels, they would uh, wear green-colored sunglasses so that everything in the Emerald City appeared to be green. And it was all a big, a giant hoax of the wizard. And it's quite elaborate, and it, it made sense in the story of the novel, but I think the movie adaptations, just going ahead and making the, the city green, works a lot better. Yeah, totally. That so so, it, so when, when it really does help, they, yeah, the material in the movies are better by changing. Okay, one of the other things that I liked, I, I thought that the casting worked pretty well, unlike a lot of, uh, uh, quite a few of the critics that I read. The, the, it's... The scale is tipped toward the positive, but just barely. But some of the negative critics have talked about how how bad Franco was and how bad Mila Kunis was. And, you know, there's pretty much consensus that Rachel Wise did well. But other than that, I think, you know, like people are dissing Michelle Williams. I thought... Oh, I disagree. Oh, I completely disagree. I thought that Michelle Williams was perfect. I, I uh, Just as an example, I, I don't know uh, how you feel about the original Glinda. I can't remember the name of the actress in the 1939 film. I never did like her i thought that she was too honey sweet just uh goody goody two shoes didn't work well i thought she worked you're right those were characteristics of her but i I think she worked for her times i think she worked for the 1930s i wouldn't want glenda portrayed like that now if i put it if, if i you know can put myself into the context of when the film was made then I think it works, but you're right. If if I had to compare her performance to Michelle Williams today, and I had to pick between the two, I'd probably p- pick uh, Michelle Williams. Oh, any day of the week, for sure, for me. I mean, and the thing about her performance, and I know this has a lot to do with writing, too, but she, she handled it well, is being able to pull off the good nature of Glinda, like, as a good witch, but not to appear as a goody-goody two-shoes, and not to... Um. Uh, not to be overbearingly sickly sweet. Um, and but yet, and also to have a, a bit of a wiseness. Like she knew that this, she knew that that the wizard was a fraud. <laughs> yeah, she knew immediately almost. So I I I really liked her performance. Um, I well didn't... that was characteristic of her in the other movie too. In another way, uh, that Glenda told Dorothy. You have to go see the wizard to get yourself back to Kansas. And come the end of the story, then Dorothy asks her, why did you tell me I had to go through all of this if I just needed to click my heels three times? Yeah, that's true, I suppose. So, so, again, she demonstrated in a very clever way how wise she was because she knew Dorothy well enough at first glance to know, this child will not believe me if I tell her about the clicking heels part. So, yeah, um, I think that that's sort of an ex- example of... Glenda is very insightful, even when you don't want her to be. 
Yeah. And, you know, as far as the other characters, Franco, I thought, was perfect. I, I don't get why people would say otherwise. I, you I know. think that Franco was great, but I just don't think that he is a... I don't think he's well-suited for this genre. I don't uh, think he does I well I with fantasy, you know, very outlandish stories. Uh, I disagree. I thought he did great. He My, did a good and, job. He didn't do great. No, he I did thought good. he did great. He was great. Come on, man. Why? Why? The original just, wizard was great. No, I don't like He that. looked the part. He acted the part. I think no. that that was that guy's, you know, greatest performance. Okay. The whatever. old guy. Whatever. Yeah. Right. Anyway, uh, so, and then Rachel Wise, she was good. Mila was good, and, except when she wasn't. And when she wasn't, she was really bad. So <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll get into that right. in a minute. Uh, I, I think she did fine for the most part. So, I really, for the most part, I was happy with the characters and i think my favorite of course being michelle williams mm. so but i suppose that's to be expected you always like the good guys um everything about this film for me was better than anything done in 1939 i know it's a different story but i just I, I don't know whether it's because i've i've seen the films so many times when i was younger or or what but i, I just don't like the original film you probably don't care for musicals do you no i don't and you probably don't There's, appreciate, uh, like, anything that looks Technicolor. Um, well, I mean, no, I don't care for Technicolor. And thirdly, <laughs> you probably don't care for the, the era of bombastic brass soundtracks. Nope. Yeah. So, see, those three things are so very characteristic of the 39 film that it's really hard to get past them if you just don't care for them. I I I I understand why a lot of people don't care for those things, but I like it. I I I get past those things. Those those things don't bother me. Well, I mean, to each his own. I, yeah, I, it's a kids' movie. It's not like I'm going to say, "Oh, wow, Vudabar." You know, it's it's definitely kids' material. Yeah. It, it right. was. It, it should have. No. <laughs> I, I did want to. We I could did debate mention, who should have played Dorothy. I was going to say it should have been a Shirley Temple movie, and then I was like, no, 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 no. What am I saying? No, Judy Garland all the way. Uh, anyway, <laughs> no, I, I, I didn't care for Judy Garland's performance either. So anyway, we're not talking about we're not talking about that film. I did want to clarify. I don't, in general, like musicals. I like Lame is okay. Um, I, I, I make a huge exception for The Sound of Music. I love that film. And that's that's really pretty much it. I don't like other musicals. Did you like it that here this was a Disney film and they were actually mocking music coming out of nowhere yes. in a real world situation? <laughs> I loved it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is Disney, right? They're they're the poster child for musicals for the last well, almost almost <laughs> one hundred years or something. And their movies character, the Wizard. He frowns upon the munchkins when they try to break out into song and he dance. He interrupts them. Yeah. <laughs> just, it was great. It, yeah, I loved it. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the better moments. Yep. All right. Are you ready to talk about things that we didn't like about this film? I I guess. Um, I wanted to say that I, I appreciate this film wasn't stealing too many ideas from Wicked. Uh, this story kind of overlaps a lot of the timeline of this other novel series that was turned into a Broadway musical. And I think the Broadway musical Wicked is pretty good for what it is, for being a musical. And when performed by some pretty talented people, it, it can be really fun. And of course, if you don't care for musicals, then it's not going to be your thing. Yeah. But the material in Wicked is 
fairly it is fairly mature it's not intended for children it's not meant for kids and i don't even care for the material that much because it's so gloomy and so it's obviously that the audience is supposed to be adults but it's it's a political story and it incorporates a lot of drama and i think it takes oz just too seriously but the musical adaptation is a pretty good balance so i'm just glad that this film again harkens so much more to the original material rather than stealing ideas from wicked when they're essentially telling backstory that involves very much the same characters at during the same time frame um there are many differences the huge differences for instance the wicked witches in the wicked story they're actually sisters too but the green witch is the older sister mm. and the and the younger sister was physically handicapped and didn't have arms interesting yeah um so there there are dramatic differences between these two um stories and i'm actually looking forward to the wicked film adaptation it's already in production i don't know when it comes out but there's that so i just wanted to mention that okay all right all the dislikes the dislikes um and this This movie was horrible no it wasn't horrible but i gotta wonder the thing that I dislike the most is that this movie is doing so well in comparison to a film released the previous week that I feel like was a much better film. Well, not much better, but a better film, which is Jack the Giant Slayer. I feel like Jack the Giant Slayer is a better film than this film, and yet this film is the one that's doing far better. Well, do you think that this film just has a lot more fans in general that are willing to set aside their differences because it's an Oz film? It seems like a it seems like the people who love Oz are young and old and the kids love to see it with their parents and grandparents love to see it with their grandchildren. And whereas Jack and the Beanstalk doesn't really have that kind of following. And, uh, in general, it's regarded as one of the great fairy tales, but most of the great fairy tales that are super popular center around one single female girl, princess, child, Whereas Jack and the Beanstalk is mostly about a guy or a boy yeah. or a young man. And uh, those are less popular fairy tales. I suppose that that's probably it. It just annoys me, though, because Jack the Giant Slater is a slightly better film. You know, a little I, bit better than Slater. I, I, I will give it to you, but I disagree. But I understand why you're there. And it, it's just about what are your tastes, right? The Jack and the Giant Slayer is much more action-driven. It's much more... Um, gritty. It, it, there's a lot more um, rough and tumble. Uh, you know, seriously. Um, what do you? What would you say? Um, v- there's some very difficult enemies to overcome. <laughs> you know, they, they seem very, um, very powerful, and they're like a real major threat to the good guys. So you're really rooting for the good guys because they're up some against some crazy, you know, terrible situations. But then in yeah, the Oz movie, you're not really rooting for any one party except for maybe Oscar. And even so, you feel like he's just a, a lukewarm good guy that's trying to get by in life and find fame and fortune. And if that means well, he can be a moral person at the same time, then so be it then. Uh, but if it meant he couldn't be moral and do that at the same time, then he wouldn't have. Yeah, and no, but I don't there's, think that's... There's too many gray areas right, in the I, Oz movie. But I think that uh, ultimately it is a story of redemption, though. Maybe that's why people resonate with it more. 
Whereas the Jack and the Giant Slayer, I suppose there wasn't as much of a redemptive theme. See, that's the thing, though. It's really not redemption. Because the way the film depicts it, yes, there could be redemption. That Oscar is a better man because he's done a wonderful thing for the citizens of Oz. And he's kicked out the wicked witches from the Emerald City. And now they got to, you know, rough it on their own. And presumably he's going to chase them down and kill them someday. But we know how the story goes. We know how this ends. Uh, there was we, no reason to believe that Jack had noble intentions and would do the right thing for the rest of his life. You know, he, he becomes this, you know, codgy old man, scaredy cat that just sits up in a tower. You said and, Jack. I'm, uh, you meant Oz. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. I meant Oz. Yeah. Well, at le- unless, and like we, we don't know what the rest of this story is, unless they stick to the same story, which we've already established that they may not do. So I, I don't know. We'll see. But for yeah. this film, it certainly was a redemptive theme. I thought so. Uh, I'll give it. I'll give it that. But I still think Jack, Jack the Giant Slayer. So you've got me doing it now, not Jack and the Giant Slayer. Jack the Giant Slayer. I still think was a, a better film. So it annoys yeah. me that this film is doing so much better. Like this <laughs> film is going to break even at least. I, okay. I I have no doubt, and there's no way at this point Jack the Giant Slayer can do that. Mm. So. Okay, and one of my dislikes about this movie as a whole was that, um, yes, we thought that the visual effects were brilliant and the art design excels, and it really serves the the live-action environments very well. You didn't often feel like James Franco was interacting with a completely CG environment, and that was that was very powerful, that you felt like he was really standing on, you know, soil. He was really flopping around in a, in a puddle or that he was, uh, you know, stepping over shattered pieces of porcelain in a, a, you know, a China dollhouse. Yeah. You know, those things felt very real. But then one of the downsides that I wasn't crazy about, which that was that this film tried to differentiate itself from, I think, some of the other uh, artistic interpretations of Oz in that a lot of the landscape has these crazy, crooked, gnarly, twisted, twirly things to them. Mountains that seem to have uh, long, pointy edges that curl upside down. And they look like curly cues. Like everything seemed like there would be long, expanding archways over canyons everywhere. And uh, I'm, I'm some waiting, of those get destroyed in this movie. I'm waiting for you to say what you put in the notes so I can have my reaction to it. Okay, well, I'm just saying that the landscape, the way that the landscape appears, looked like it was reminiscent of something from a Dr. Seuss animated picture, which is very faithful to the Dr. Seuss books and their illustrations. That was my reaction when I I read this in, in, in your notes. It was, say what? Yeah, well, it should have been. Because it just didn't feel like it belonged. No, no, that was my reaction to you, not to the, I didn't see that at all in this film. Oh, I don't agree. Well, why is it you don't agree? <laughs> I don't think it looks like Dr. Seuss. Uh-huh. I don't think it re- it's reminiscent of Dr. Seuss at all. No, I, I thought it was I'm great. Not saying, I'm not saying trees looked like they were pink and purple and plump pieces of <laughs> cotton. Or that, you know, every creature only had three fingers and socks were a part of their body. <laughs> um, you know, I'm I'm just saying that the... The way in which there was like curly cues to everything and archways that were crooked and zigzaggedy over I, everything in I, the terrain I, I seemed just was, reminiscent of Dr. Seuss. No, I, I thought it was 
perfectly fine. I thought it was Oz. I thought it was fine. So I disagree. And those, but those things also felt inconsistent with other things that were very just. They hit it on the on the money. You know, the Emerald City was exactly how I've always wanted to see it in all its glory. And yeah. even the the field of poppies felt like it was right out of the other the 39 film. Uh, like except that, was that what they it were red like. instead of yellow. If I remember right, the 1939 film was yellow. That was probably a thing they did to avoid, you know, try to avoid lawsuit. <laughs> um, I don't remember what their color was. I thought maybe they were pink, but uh, I don't know. I think they were yellow. I don't remember. Somebody in the chat room, if you're in there listening and you remember differently, can say so. But I think, I wonder what happens if I Google... I'm, I'm looking it up now. Of Oz, Field of Poppies. The results all up at the top kind of look pinkish red. Oh, okay. I was wrong. I, it's been a long time. Yeah, they're more orangey. That's what it is. It's been a long time since I've watched the film. I just remember in my mind's eye that oh, being oh, yellow. Oh, yeah. Here, here's a great one. I'm going to share this with you, TJ. There, there's like orangey ones, and there's also very distinctly yellow ones. That's probably what you were seeing. It's a mix mash. Okay. They do look more red than I remember, for sure. Mm. Uh, oh, well. All right. So, anyway. <laughs> In well, any event. The, and, but my biggest, you know, my biggest complaint is that, as a whole, um, I felt like there were some slightly unreasonable, inconsistent, illogical, uh, not even serving emotional um, choices made throughout the film by the characters and they usually hampered the character of theodora the uh the character that mila kunis plays but they also influenced other characters like when oscar the wizard shows up in oz he just came from a a drab dry dingy farmland of kansas where the in all directions the land is flat and monochromatic and monochromatic. <laughs> it, it, humans in this world see the world much like dogs. So then he comes into Oz and everything is in bright, beautiful, you know, prime saturated colors. And there's all this rolling hill landscape, outrageous creatures, um, floral and fauna that create music. And Oscar just kind of seems like, where am I? Not to like, holy cow, where am I? What is going on around here? And that's what I would have expected. And then there was later moments, like when uh, Theodora is told by her sister, here, take a bite of this apple. It'll fix everything. Yeah, for, I, for no real clear apparent reason, Theodora just listens to her. And then when she bites the apple, all of a sudden, oh, I get it all. You're not only trying to deceive me, you're really the bad guy. But yeah, then, and I, I but didn't then, understand yeah. the whole point. I, like That was just weird, the Apple thing. I agree. <sighs> that was the, a, a crux of the turning point for Theodora. And I don't understand like where that even comes. I mean, it just didn't make any sense. Totally stupid. Um, an another frustration was that the uh, little China doll, her entire village is destroyed, and it's very tragic. And it's a very powerful moment when you see the flying monkey and Oz go into her village and find her in a smashed up teapot house. And it's kind of weird, right? Because on the one hand, this looks kind of silly. Like, oh no, somebody broke and smashed up a bunch of dollhouses. Ha ha ha. 
But then you realize, well, in this world, these people are actually alive. So this is actually kind of tragic because they were like obliterated. And Oscar actually picks up one of the broken faces of one of the China dolls, which is essentially, you know, grotesque, violent, you know, bizarrity as far as these China dolls would be concerned, you know, for their own race. Like, whoa, that's you just picked up half of a head and that's that should be considered like totally gross and morbid and violent. But, yeah, we're looking at a China doll's head. Right. So it's actually not all that violent. But then to to downplay the seriousness of this crime, uh, this um, that the the fly, these evil flying monkeys have wiped out all of these people. Um, the little girl China doll, when thinking back to the tragedy, there's many times that she's got kind of like a, a somber attitude and she seems sad about the loss of her family and everything back there. But not once does she say how devastated she is about losing her family and her friends. Just once she audibly says, I miss my village. And it's like, really? You miss your village? I mean, I know you're talking about the people and your village now, but you're not addressing the things that mattered in that village, like the people that made it home. You know, that doesn't bother you? And I understand why they did it. They did. They had her speak those words to make it more kid-friendly so it wasn't so dark and serious and uh, you know morbid that the child says something like, I miss my parents. I miss all my dead relatives, you know, uh, but that, that would have been, that have been human nature. That's what you would have expected out of human nature. And this girl portrays human nature. So it seemed a little inconsistent. And there were things like this here and there throughout. Yeah. That didn't bother me. I thought it was fine. And I was, I thought it was pretty, uh, devastating and sad. So I it was devastating, but not as often as it should have been. Okay. So, yeah. All right. So, um, the 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 trouble that we might both have here in common would be with the uh, wicked witches, and particularly with Theodora. Oh yeah. Um. Hey, I need to. We need to pause here for just a minute. My son is sleeping on the bed right next to me, and he has woke up. So, uh, <laughs> well, do you want me to talk a little more? No, no. Just uh. Well, entertain our uh, folks in the chat room. I'll be right back. Okay, well, everybody, I have a few ju- juicy stories to tell you about TJ, but first I want to get to this other point. Um, Theodora's witch look, you know, um, what was her name? Margaret Hamilton, I think it was, in the 39 film. She, her makeup and her costume really sold the iconic look of an, a wicked witch. She was spot on. They didn't need anything more than drab, long dresses that are bl- flowing black material and a, an old, a supersized hat with a pointy tip. That's all they needed to. Oh, uh, and for makeup, her hair would be all black or something and her skin that green, which is all very iconic and it, it, a pointy nose. That's all it really took, right? Well, I didn't care for how they, they kind of translated and changed the look of Theodora. She's the only one with the witch that really starts to look witchy in the movie until near the very end. Are you back, TJ? I'm back, and I was okay. listening, yes. So my point is, is that it just didn't seem like Mila Kunis worked with all that green makeup. Yeah, this is where it, didn't it mostly look right. fell apart, I think. Um, 
is is you know I think that her makeup just wasn't quite uh, evil enough or something. It, it, it just looked, looked, it looked like she was wearing a Halloween costume. Yeah. Oh yeah. And like how her dress was like serrated strips of cloth going all all directions, but then she was wearing like leather pants underneath or something. Something like that, yeah. It just didn't seem to match the tonal quality of the Wicked Witch. It was, yeah. like, and then borrowed the whole, from something else. The whole broom thing, like, you know, at the beginning, they set it up where Oscar Diggs was asking, well, do you ride a broom around? Why would I need to do that? And then and then she, like, takes somebody's broom and says, you wanted to see me ride a broom? I guess I'll ride a broom. What What, what, would it, what was that even about? <laughs> it was just yeah. weird. The, yeah, the payoff there landed completely flat. Lame. <laughs> it Lame. was totally. And, and I, I do have to say, is it just me or can 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 you not do force lightning anymore Be, you know when when uh, rachel oh, wise goes right. all emperor palpatine dark, yeah dark it, side it, yeah it doesn't lightning. it doesn't work because Star it was Wars terrible did it and you can't go there anymore i would have much rather than having this kinetic energy battle that we had seen like them i don't know lighting trees on fire and throwing them at each other or something Something, yeah i i just i wonder if though it would have been fine if star wars had never existed like but but it, it does exist and you just can't help but like i'm sitting here going holy cow she's going all emperor palpatine what's up with that yes <laughs> and, and it didn't seem right that that was the only way that avanora really took out any sort of vengeance on anybody um, right she she didn't uh use any sort of other power to attack her enemies. Yeah. And and then when she had the flying monkeys who were obviously better at brutish, you know, uh, physical, you know, painful stuff than she was, you know, doing the dirty work, she didn't send them out all that often. The one, the one time she sends them out, uh, no, two times that she sends them out are mainly to chase down people and capture them and bring them back to be dealt with by her. Mm-hmm. Why didn't she just tell those people, go have at it, kill them? You know, like she did uh, before the movie even begins, or presumably off camera, when she sent those flying monkeys to destroy the China village. The Chinatown. Yeah, I think that's actually what they were called, Chinatown. Yeah, I don't I don't understand. So, yeah, <sighs> these, these are the sorts of things that kind of bring the movie down from a yeah. four-star film. Uh, even if even if Evanora had just had a good knife that was, like, curved, Right. Something. Sharp on one side, a curved knife, and like ready to stab it in everybody. That'd have been cool. Yeah, but you know, to, to make up for it, um, they did have a really great ending where I really was wondering exactly how this was going to work out, how they were going to tie it up, and you know, just kind of summarizing and wrapping things up here. I I I was sufficiently impressed with the way they ended the film. Yes, with, with the way I, they resolved things. And I'll say that I I enjoyed it. Uh, I think it could have been done better, but I'm satisfied with its lighthearted entertainment value. I think it's very fun for family, and uh, the kids especially should enjoy it. Yeah. So I I give it three and a half stars. I I agree, and I'm right there with you. Um, uh, Have you gotten on Letterboxd yet? No, I haven't. It's a, it's, I find it great, even if nobody else is following, which a few people are following me, I'm following a few people. But it, So it's kind of like Twitter or Facebook from, for movies, but I find it useful just to go, what did it is I a good looking when, and, and how did I rate it? You know, What did I think of it? And then it kind of reminds me of Jungle Memory. Anyway, so I rated it three and a half there. That's what I give it, three and a half stars. Uh, so, you know, not, not quite as many stars as I gave Jack, and the, Jack the Giant Slayer, but it was, it was worthy and worthwhile to watch. Mm. As we talked Understood. about, it's on the positive side of the scale. Yes. 
Now, where would he compare TJ to the Wizard of Oz, the ninety, uh, the thirty nine film? It's so hard for me to judge that film. Oh, okay. But I would have to give that film two stars. Yeah, I would have given it uh, the original one three and a half as well. Okay. And part of me just because I enjoyed some of the songs some of the time, but I don't enjoy all of the songs all the time. And that movie <laughs> has so many songs. Yes, I I can't stand most of the songs. So there you go. Now, IMDb is giving the Oz the Great and Powerful film seven uh, out of ten stars. Rotten Tomatoes critics like it. They're giving it a sixty-one percent. And well, they kind of like it. Yeah, that just yeah. It's like it's like we've been saying. I guess they they're kind of where we are, and so is the regular general audience that they're giving it a sixty-nine, which isn't much better. Yeah, I have to say though, the the whole thing just <laughs> since we're t- we talked about ratings earlier and we're talking about the Rotten Tomato ratings now is when you when you look at the the way they come up with these ratings on Rotten Tomatoes is thumbs up or thumbs down from the critic, and then they average those into a percentage. And so the critic either says thumbs up or thumbs down, so it's not a nuanced rating scale like we have, which is kind of annoying. And, and you know, most of the times, too, when you click through and read the critics, they either really like it or they really don't like a film. That bugs me. It really bugs me. Because hmm. this film has things to recommend it and things to not recommend it. So you can't. I can't just sit here and go... Thumbs down or thumbs up. I, you know. So. Yeah, I, I understand. Completely. Anyway, yep. Just, it's, in the, it's in the gray area. Yeah, although, like I said, it's a little bit on the positive side of that. So, mm-hmm. anyway, next week we're going to be talking about uh, Halle Berry's The Call. So, you'll want to make sure you tune in for that. Hopefully, we'll be at our regular time, Joe. You can manage that. I, I should be able to. Okay. All right, so we'll talk about the call, and hopefully we'll do that at 6.30 p.m. Central Time, 7.30 Eastern on Wednesday, next Wednesday. All right, Joe, where can people keep up with you and your working, uh, you know, your, your writings, not your workings, your writings, and, uh, you know, find out about your car wrecks and stuff? Mm. Well, I'm on the internets. Uh, just go to josephdarnell.com or joedarnell.com. It redirects you to my site, and it's called Jiving Jackalope. So I talk about stuff there. I try to keep up with some things about movies, technology, culture, my life, the arts that I enjoy. So check that out. And uh, But in particular, if you want to hang out with me socially on the internet, go catch me on Twitter. Just find me, um, Joseph Darnell. All right. Uh, I am also on Twitter, TJ Draper Pro. Uh, you know, I'm on uh, app.net now as well, but I find I hardly ever use it because I don't know anybody over there. Nobody follows me over there. But if you want to uh, encourage me to use app.net, you can go to alpha.app.net slash TJ Draper. So you will find me there. Uh, I have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash TJ Draper. And I write every day on moviebyte.com. write a little something. Sometimes I write a lot of something. Uh, but every day, moviebyte.com is updated, and it's usually by me because Joe, you just don't you just don't get time to write very much. So it's usually me. Mm. Uh, but head out there, check that out. All the show notes for this episode can be found at moviebyte.com/mbpodcast/thirty-five. That's where you find all the show notes. You can listen to this episode uh, again if you're listening. You caught it via a podcast client, uh, and you want to hear something again. Head out there. There's where the show notes and the audio are at. Uh, also, uh, you can catch Movie Byte on Facebook, facebook.com slash moviebyte. Catch us on Twitter, fa- uh, twitter.com slash moviebyte. Uh, mm. I'm setting up a Google Plus profile for Movie Byte, but it's not very populated yet, so I'm trying to see if that uh, Google, I think, likes that. That'll be coming up soon. All right, that's it. See you all, all next right. week. Have a good one. <laughs>